In terms of the church calendar, the liturgical calendar, this Sunday is Transfiguration Sunday. It comes between the season of Epiphany and the season of Lent, which of course begins this coming week with the ashes of Ash Wednesday. So after Christmas comes Epiphany, the season of Revelation, and after Epiphany comes Lent, the season of Repentance and Reflection. But standing in between those two seasons is this one Sunday, Transfiguration Sunday. What is it doing here? How does it function? Is it a bridge from one season to the next? Well, in terms of gospel chronology, it is not really a bridge from one season to the next. Because in the scripture story, the story of Jesus' baptism, which is a key epiphany story, is immediately followed by the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, which is the most common story told at the beginning of Lent. The two stories and the seasons they represent are back-to-back in the gospel chronology. So really, the transfiguration story, which shows up three chapters later in Luke's gospel, doesn't really belong in the back-to-back, between the back-to-back stories of baptism and wilderness temptation. The transfiguration is out of order in the gospel chronology. But someone put it in this spot liturgically, even if it doesn't fit chronologically. And I think there are a couple of possible reasons for that. One reason that this story may sit here between the seasons is simply because the creators of the liturgical calendar knew that we need markers between one season and the next. We need clearly marked moments when we can say, this time is over, or this season is over, and now another time or another season begins. Maybe to function like the finish line at the end of a race and the starting line at the, at the beginning of another. And if you're going to lay down a marker with a particular scripture story, what better way to do that than to tell a story that marks a very unique and memorable moment, something attention-getting, a mountaintop, heads in the clouds, mystery and wonder, a voice from heaven kind of story. So that might be one reason to set the transfiguration story in between these seasons. A second reason that this particular story may sit here between these two seasons is that this story bridges the two seasons in the sense that it has an echo of each. The transfiguration story has, first of all, an echo of the baptism story, which started off the season of Epiphany. And that echo is quite literally found in the voice from the cloud in the story this morning, which echoes the voice from heaven in the baptism story. The voice saying, this is my son, the chosen one, here at the transfiguration, is an echo of the voice that says, this is my son, the beloved, at the baptism. And not only that, but there is an echo in the other direction as well, an echo forward, That is, in the appearance of Jesus as he's transfigured into a dazzling white figure there on the mountain, there is perhaps a foreshadowing of the resurrection story, where in Luke's account there are two angels dressed how? In dazzling white clothing, who appear to the women when they come to the tomb on Easter morning. 
So in this transfiguration story, we have a story that echoes backwards and forwards. The echo of the heavenly voice reaching back to the beginning of Epiphany and the image of dazzling white appearance reaching forward to the promise of Easter. Now, those are two good reasons for transfiguration to sit here between the seasons of Epiphany and Lent as a mile marker in the journey of change or as an echo and a foreshadowing of the unfolding gospel story. But the third reason I think of, which to me is actually the most interesting one, even though it's the least connected and compelling in terms of liturgical or theological explanations, is this. The way in which the experiences of the disciples in this story, the very timeless, relevant, human experiences of the disciples, speaks to our experiences as well in an in-between time. That is, as we stand on thresholds, in times of transition, at the edge of the change of seasons, we can relate to the experiences of the disciples, their experiences on the mountaintop of sleepiness and cloudiness and fearfulness. Because even if I don't care a whole lot about liturgical seasons, and I already know that I care more about those things than you do, and even if I don't get a kick out of the ways in which Scripture moves forward and folds back on itself at the same time, which is something I know only a few of us here this morning find to be all that exciting, I certainly understand and am moved at a deep emotional and spiritual level by the imagining of what it is like to find oneself on the top of the mountain. And instead of being able to see for the view of miles and miles, suddenly losing all sense of stability and safety as the clouds roll in, as only mountaintop clouds can roll in, that sensation speaks to me. You think it's frightening to try to drive on one of those Indiana mornings when the fog is as thick as soup? Try on the idea of standing on a mountain peak without being able to see to move one foot in front of the other. And if you haven't had that clouded summit experience in a literal sense, I'm sure you've had it in a figurative sense. In some aspect of your life, you felt as though you've climbed and climbed and finally reached the summit, exhausted but also exhilarated, and suddenly you discover that you can't see a thing. You're stuck in the cloud. I think we all understand what it feels like to anticipate something great to climb toward it, to dream of unencumbered vision, to anticipate finally being on top of things, only to have it all overtaken by extreme tiredness, extreme cloudiness, paralyzing fearfulness. As I think of the last two years, I know without a doubt that I am more acquainted with exhaustion than I am with exhilaration. And since I feel like that, I expect that maybe you do too. 
I think that right now, more than the repetition of a disembodied voice from heaven, more than the echoes of past and future scripture story, more than markers to be laid down to mark liturgical milestones, what I need is a word of explanation and maybe even more so a word of encouragement about how to hang in there when I am overwhelmed by that trio of tiredness and cloudiness and fearfulness. I would like to know what to do spiritually, emotionally, even practically, when I feel overshadowed by all those things. I feel like this has been a long winter. Maybe it's because of the yo-yo of snow and cold followed by warmth and melt, the tease of something warmer followed by the bitterness of something colder again. How many weeks in a row can you have one to three inches of snow predicted for Thursday? and not feel like you're trapped in a weird winter cycle. It's not just temperatures and precipitation that's made the winter seem long to me. It is the number of cloudy days. If you Google this question, is it always cloudy in Indiana? The answer that comes up first from one of the Indianapolis television weather reporters is this. Winter in central Indiana is typically known as a relatively gloomy season. The information goes on to say that in the middle of winter, 58% of days are cloudy. Maybe that's typical, but it seems to me that much more than half the days have been cloudy. And not only that, but I have especially felt the weightiness of cloudy days this winter. When clouds dominate the sky, it seems as though the chill in the air reaches more directly into my bones. This winter, I think I've checked the weather forecast more often than usual because I have dreaded more snow, more ice, more wind, and yes, more clouds. And yet, I am pretty sure, even as I say all of that, that I am talking about more than the weather. Spring is coming. It is coming. I know it's coming. The calendar says so. It comes every year. The first official day of spring is only three weeks away, and yet it's not here yet. And so we are tired. Tired of winter and tired of more than winter. It's cold and windy at the top of the mountain this time of year. When will spring come? That is, when will tiredness fall away? When will the clouds clear off? When will fearfulness recede? Those are emotional questions. Those are spiritual questions. But they are asked in the context of everyday realities of everyday life. When are the clouds going to clear? That is, when will there be an end to the thick cloud of pandemic? When will the time come when there will be no more fast-moving, ever more infectious variants, no more masks, no more social distancing, no more separation? When are the clouds going to clear? That is, when will there be an end to the thick clouds of political division? No more constant characterization of the other side as the enemy, the villain. No more toleration of politicians talking out both sides of the mouth. No more sneaky and self-serving undermining of democracy by so-called leaders and influencers. When are the clouds going to clear? 
That is, when will the thick clouds of grief clear away? No more cloudiness of the unwelcomed regularity of decline and death. No more heart heaviness from the loss of another saint or the loss of another familiar landmark or the loss of another family relationship that was once close and is now drifting further and further away. When are the clouds going to clear? That is, when will the thick clouds of conflict personal conflicts, international conflicts, threats of war and then acts of war, disregard for human rights, for human life, the rumble of tanks, the march of boots. When will that thick cloud of conflict clear away? When are the clouds going to clear? We continue to wonder about wander about in a cloud of racial mistrust and instinctive self-protection, a cloud of denial of the humanity of others, the right to be heard, to be respected, the right to vote, the right to walk on the street without accusation or threat. When are the clouds going to clear? That is, is the end of that thick cloud of disappointment coming Will there be an end to the feeling that we are in a fog of constant adjustment? Will the thick heaviness of too much expectation layered over too few resources clear off? Will the cloudiness of constantly looking over our shoulders, even though we can't see more than a few feet in any direction, finally end? The clouds, you see, aren't just in the sky. The clouds are in our minds, in our hearts, in our daily perspectives. The tiredness isn't just from a lack of sleep, from insomnia or burning the candle at both ends. The tiredness is from holding ourselves carefully in a time of constant uncertainty. The fearfulness isn't just pessimism. It isn't paranoia. The fearfulness is the result of spending too much time on alert for the next danger in an ever-changing context. The clouds aren't just in the sky. They're in us, and they're around us. Peter and the others climb the mountain with Jesus, and they're just plain tired. And then later on, when the cloud comes over them, they're not only tired, but overwhelmed and fearful. It seems like it's just too much. But, and this is the easier thing to say than it is to believe, The cloud is also the place where things change within us and around us. When you can't see two feet in front of you, don't you listen more carefully? When the unexpected keeps showing up, don't you begin to let go of your expectations? When Jesus sits down to chat with Elijah and Moses, don't you finally stop saying, oh, this can't be, and start asking, what next? When winter seems like it's gone on long enough, don't you begin to actively and intentionally look and listen for signs of spring? Honestly, I wonder whether I only begin to hear more clearly when I recognize and then acknowledge that I'm tired of listening. 
I wonder whether I only begin to trust more fully when I begin to come to terms with my inability to see and predict what's coming next. And I expect that I begin to seek help only when I can't see where to put my foot down for the next step on the path. In the cloud there is fatigue and fearfulness and on the very worst of days a feeling of being overwhelmed but there is also a mystery that invites wonder. There are voices that I don't hear every day in the everyday throng and there is discovery or at least the possibility of discovery reaching out for things I can hear and feel even if I can't see and control those things. And then, wonder of wonders, I take a step and then another, and I discover that I have not fallen off the edge of the cliff. Is that enough good news to keep me going, that although I was caught in a cloud, I didn't fall off a cliff? I'm not entirely sure, but I do know this. Winter gives way to spring, and clouds give way to sunshine. Maybe not right away. Maybe not without the sometimes steep costs that come along with too much fatigue and too much fearfulness for too long. But winter gives way to spring. And clouds give way to sunshine. And eventually, the wonder of what happens on the mountain, the experience of not only surviving sudden and sometimes shocking changes, but of catching a glimpse of God's glory in the midst of the unexpected, is enough to keep us going. For now, when you are in the cloud, listen for the voices above you and the voices around you. And perhaps, if you can, find a hand to hold, the hand of another disciple perhaps who also can't see much past their own nose. And then wait for the clouds to clear, no matter how long it takes. Because when they do, when the clouds lift the path down the mountainside will be visible again. And you will know the way. And your steps will be safe. And all that has weighed you down will be shed from your shoulders. Barbara Brown Taylor wrote a book titled Learning to Walk in the Dark. Her descriptions of various experiences in the depth of a cave or on a nighttime walk are not exactly the same thing as standing in a cloud, but there are plenty of parallels. And late in the book, she quotes a prayer by Thomas Merton, and I want to end with Merton's words, which I think capture the hopefulness and the trust that I hope we can have, trust and hope that the clouds will clear and we will know a way forward. Merton prayed, My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. 
I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself, and the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I actually am doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope that I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. Amen.